updates to the CCS dyslipidemia guidelines, application to established CBD patients. Welcome everyone to this uh, podcast. Um, I'm Dr. Vanita Ahuja. I am a cardiologist in the uh, greater Toronto area with a few offices and a niche area of sort of imaging and preventative cardiology. We have the good fortune of having with us today, Dr. George Thanasoulis, who is a preventative cardiologist and genetic epidemiologist at McGill University. And Dr. Thanasoulis is also the chair of the updated 2021 Canadian Cardiovascular Society Lipid Guidelines, which was a grueling process. And I think I speak for most of our colleagues when I say thank you, George, for putting this uh, guideline together for us. So welcome. Um, so today we're going to speak about a few key points of the guidelines, in particular as they relate to uh, patients with established cardiovascular disease. And um, George, there were a few things that struck me in these guidelines, uh, just to jump right into it here. Uh, the first off was that in patients with established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, you know, if they are beyond that threshold of 1.8 LDLC that we're trying to achieve, uh, if they're more than 20% away from that threshold, we the guidelines suggest we should consider a PCSK9 inhibitor as they're getting, you know, a good greater bang for the buck with the PCSK9 versus azetamibe if they are already on uh, maximally tolerated statin. However, they also suggest that the, if they are within 20% of that threshold, let's say they're under an LDLC of 2.2, that we could consider adding azetamibe first on top of their maximally tolerated statin, and then later consider a PCSK9 inhibitor if we need to. So my question is here, you know, in the Fourier trial and some of the other uh, PCSK9 inhibitor trials, the uptake or the number of patients on azetamibe was really somewhere around 5%, both in the treatment arm and in the placebo arm. So should we be scratching azetamibe altogether since we are getting that aggressive LDL lowering with PCSK9? And the reason that it's in the guidelines, is it based on the cost of PCSK9s? And, you know, what, what is your feeling on, uh, what is your take on this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, lots of issues there to, to unpack. Um, you know, I think the first uh, point I'll say is it's absolutely true um, that that we know now that every single patient benefits from aggressive uh, LDL lowering, uh, and and the and the lower the LDL, uh, the better um, in 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 pretty much all our patients. Um, certainly in in secondary uh, prevention. Um, so you know. It, the, the question does come down a little bit to, to feasibility and costs. Um, uh, and, and that was part of the thinking um, with respect to how the guidelines are written. But I think also the important point to make here is that we have to consider, you know, which patients are likely going to benefit the most from our, from our most um, potent therapies. And although, as I pointed out, uh, pointed out earlier, every patient will benefit but I think it's important to target those really aggressive therapies to those who will, who will benefit the most. And that's why we made this, this point to say that if you're, if you're far from the target and if, you're, if you have a very high um, uh, number of uh, atherogenic particles, then this is the kind of patient who will likely uh, benefit more from, from uh, PCSK9 inhibition. And that's really uh, was, was borne out even in, in the trials in individuals who had an LDL cholesterol, you know, more than 2.6 uh, in one of the two trials, these patients had a much, much lower uh, number needed to treat. So I think, I, think they're, I think it's important that we target our, our most aggressive therapies and those who benefit the most. I also wanna make a point, which is 
perhaps an area of clarification is that in, in individuals who, who have other features that are also high benefit and, and are not necessarily far from the target, we're also recommending uh, PCSK9 inhibition there. So it's not just a question of being far from target. If your patient has other um, features that, that, that have been shown in RCTs to increase benefit, like a recent ACS, like recurrent events, um, you know, like a, a multivascular kind of patient, those are other reasons to also consider a, a PCSK9 inhibitor first line. That's something that, that's new, that, that is borne out from the RCT data. And, and I think it's an important uh, aspect of these new guidelines that allows us a more direct access to broaden the, 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 the number of patients who can have a very aggressive LDL lowering. Thanks so much. Uh, so essentially our lowest hanging fruit is our highest risk patient and you would maybe target those patients for PCSK9. And when you speak about atherogenic particles, we're going to speak about this a little later because I have another question for you on that. But I, I think what is most reflective of the number of atherogenic particles is probably the ApoB, hence the inclusion into the, into the guidelines there, right? It's fantastic. Okay, great. So Moving to triglycerides, the greatest thing I think that, that everybody's happy about in the guidelines is for many years, we didn't really know what to do with this sort of metabolic kind of elevation of triglyceride. And we now have this agent, which uh, helps us to lower triglycerides, namely Vasipa or Icosapent ethyl, uh, looking at two grams uh, twice a day in patients with established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. That being said, it can also be used in primary prevention in diabetics greater than age 50. Uh, but with, uh, you know, with PCSK9 inhibitors, again, we get around 15 to 20% lowering of triglycerides. So if we have a patient who's already on a PCSK9 inhibitor, perhaps we have lowered them below the 1.5 threshold for triglycerides, uh, which, would, and which would qualify them to be on icosapent ethyl. So are we doing them a disservice by getting that added lowering and now we lose the benefit of a drug like icosapent ethyl uh, if we're doing them in that order because we're seeing these pleiotropic and anti-inflammatory effects with icosapent ethyl. So should we be using that agent first and later using other more advanced, more um, uh, LDL targeted agents later? Yeah. It's, it's a great question. And it's something that unfortunately we don't really have the answer to. Um, as, as you know, Vanita, there's no head to head trial that compares the strategy of you know, PCSK9 inhibition versus um, uh, icosapentaethyl, which would be really interesting to see you know, how that would, uh, that would play out. Um, you know, the, the reduced trial was a remarkable study with a huge um, uh, both relative risk reduction and absolute risk reduction. Um, and, and really this issue of triglycerides, um, as you know, is, was really a, a selected as a, as, a, as a marker of risk, but we don't think that IPE really works uh, via triglycerides. Um, and I would even suggest that perhaps, you know, maybe in, in, in future studies, we'll see that, that IPE will, will, will be used potentially in a broader group of population, in a, in a, in a broader population. Um, I think though that the key point that, that needs to be addressed here is that we know from many, many years of, 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 of data that the, 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 the cornerstone really of, of um, cardiovascular prevention, especially in secondary prevention, is lowering of ApoB particles. Um, and therefore, you know, there's just so much data that supports that as a, as a, as a first line uh, therapy. So I think in a patient where you have um, a patient who's, who's, who's above the threshold. And I would even say a patient who's, who's maybe also in that 
more than 20% um, range. You know, I would go first with the PCSK9 inhibitor and, and really aggressively deal with the, with the, with the, the, the most you know, important culprit in, in, in residual risk. Uh, and then potentially, if they still qualify, use IP as a second line agent. Uh, but I think that there are other patients, perhaps a patient who might be closer uh, to that threshold where you might be debating more, you know, should I add a zetamibe in this patient or should I be using IPE? I think that's a much more interesting question there because there, you know, you're already, you've already achieved pretty good um, LDL or ApoB lowering. Uh, and now you're considering what's the next step. There's a, a, a that, that's a situation where you know I might be more comfortable moving to to starting that patient on IPE and then seeing uh, what happens. There's actually a little bit. There's some data that suggests that perhaps the ApoB and the LDL cholesterol might actually go up a little bit in those patients, and then and then they might still require um, further. Um, uh, therapy. So I think, you know, that's the way I would kind of look at it. A, a patient with a lot of particles, a high atherogenic particle burden, high LDL, high ApoB, high LPA, I would definitely go with a PCSK9. But in another patient who doesn't have those features, who's closer to that threshold, then perhaps IPE instead of azetamide. But again, uh, that's just my personal uh, practice. And there's really no evidence to support either, either approach. So it comes down to what the the patient and the, and the physician uh, prefer. Interesting. Thank you so much for that. And you know, you know, it's very helpful when we do this deep dive into the guidelines because there's these niche areas. Um, another question, though, you know, in the Reduce It trial, we didn't really have patients on PCSK9 inhibitors. So, do you see any contraindication to using the two drugs concomitantly? No, I don't. Any think reason that, why we shouldn't? Yeah. No. No. To answer that quickly, no, I don't think so. And um, in 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 my practice, I have a few patients who are who are getting both. Um, I think it's a reasonable option for high risk patients um, who qualify for both to be on both therapies. Amazing. Okay. And thirdly, George, so I have this question on now we have apolipoprotein B and we have LP little a in the guidelines. So finally, after you know, 20 years of seeing it in bench research, we're seeing this surface now. So it's, it's wonderful. Um, so apolipoprotein B, the number of atherogenic particles, should we be checking this in every patient at every lipid check? Is this something we should regularly follow similar to our LDLC? Yeah. And with LP little a, do you see any role for a one-time check in patients with established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease as opposed to just, as opposed to just the once-in-a-lifetime check in our primary prevention patients? Yeah, uh, those are two excellent questions. So I think I think the key um, a point here I want to make about ApoB is the data is is overwhelmingly clear that that the benefit of all our therapies really depends on the lowering of ApoB, and, and therefore the best marker to follow how well your patient is doing and how well you're controlling their atherogenic risk is by measuring uh, ApoB. And that's even you know, more so than, than measuring LDL cholesterol. So I would even go out on a limb and saying that, especially in a patient who you're following um, sequentially over time, you could just get away with just measuring ApoB as the only marker um, to follow uh, the, 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 you know, the, the optimization of their, of their uh, lipid therapy. Um, regarding LPA, LPA certainly has a lot of value in primary prevention. I would say it also can be valuable in secondary prevention. If you find a patient who has a very high LPA, um, that tells you a lot about their atherogenic risk. They have another source of, of lipoprotein particles that you're not addressing with your typical uh, therapies. This is a kind of patient 
um, where a, uh, a PCSK9 inhibitor could be uh, utilized. Um, it is one of those uh, criteria for a high benefit. So I think in the secondary prevention population, uh, it does make sense to, to measure uh, LP at least once to know whether you're dealing with, with, with that additional source of, of, of risk. Okay. And I know at least in Ontario, there still is a cost to these two tests. So they're roughly around $35, I believe, with some of our labs. Uh, hopefully that'll be covered uh, you know, at some point in the future. Um, so also, you know, looking to the future, I know you've done quite a bit of research and actually we're quite implemental in, in finding the association between LP little a and aortic stenosis, just going off on a tangent here. There's a number of new agents coming on the market for LPA lowering. And we're, act, we're actually very keen on, on, on looking at uh, using some of these newer um, targeted agents uh, for, for um, aortic stenosis uh, prevention. So, so something definitely to come uh, in, in the future as these uh, agents develop and become more uh, clinically available. Fantastic, George. So thank you so much for your expertise and for joining today on this podcast. I'm sure our listeners got a lot out of this. I certainly did. And just to recap then, when we look at the guidelines in terms of the 2021 Canadian cardiovascular guidelines in terms of a patient with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, uh, when deciding between a PCSK9 inhibitor and azetamib in patients who are already on maximally tolerated statin, we would choose a PCSK9 inhibitor the majority of the time when our patients are that very high risk population with recurrent events and you know severe ASCVD. Um, secondly, uh, you know we see icosapen ethyl as a wonderful drug, and uh, for not just uh, lowering triglyceride, but which is more of a marker, but more so for its anti-inflammatory effects. But we do still feel. I mean, you have uh, uh, alluded to the fact as well that we've had so many trials uh, looking at event reductions when we lower the uh, number of atherogenic particles. And so we should always be considering that first. Uh, and thirdly, uh, apolipoprotein B is a good marker to follow uh, because again, it specifies the number of atherogenic particles for our patients and, and we can continue to uh, serially follow that over time. LP little a, I certainly have been using it now, uh, especially since the guidelines. So thank you. And I do, I am able to now identify patients who are at that higher uh, genetic risk, so to speak, long-term. So it helps you push beyond, above and beyond that threshold that we now have in the guidelines. So thank you everybody for joining and thank you, Dr. Thanasoulis. This was wonderful. No, thanks a lot, Vanita. Uh, great questions, great commentary. Thank you for joining this podcast. Mm -hmm.